Now, I apologize ahead in advance. I'm no Dave Canfield when it comes to dramatic readings, but I'll try my best. So today, we're, we're going to be in Acts 17, 16 through 34. This is what it says. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as the in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Eupicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seemed to be advocating for gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found on the altar with this inscription, To an unknown God, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as he, if he need, needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that he, they should inhabit the whole world, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any of us, any one of us, for in him we live and move and have in our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thanks, Dan. That was a mouthful. I appreciate it. Amen. Amen. So, Leslie Newbegin uh, is a scholar I've quoted here before, but he was uh, one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. But Newbegin's story is a little bit more interesting than just being uh, an influential theologian. For 40 years of his life, he was also a missionary in India. For 40 years of his life, he attempted to communicate the gospel to the people of India in both word and deed. But being a theologian, uh, he also thought a lot about what he was doing and why he was doing it. They are burdened with that. Uh, 
I think. One of the primary things that Newbegin reflected on during his time as a missionary is how the gospel, how the gospel uh, that he was attempting to communicate came into contact, how it touched or how it intersected with uh, what the culture within which he was trying to communicate it, right? So Newbegin was from England. He was, he was English. And when he went to India, he was well aware of the ways in which his Christianity intersected with the predominant culture in India. He wanted to bring Christian belief and values to bear in his missionary work, but he was also aware that, he did not necess- that that did not necessarily mean that he wanted to make these Indian men and women more British. Do you see what, where the tension lies there? Because Newbegin understood in many ways that British culture, that the culture from which he came from in Britain, uh, was not synonymous with Christianity, and that in many ways the British culture he came with needed Christian witness as much as the uh, Indian culture to which he was going as a missionary. He wanted to be a faithful Christian witness while helping the Indian people to see uh, where it was in their culture, in their language, in their belief uh, that, that you could find some contradiction or some tension between that and the teaching of Jesus or the gospel or the good news. But this missionary work also made him more aware than ever that Christianity also had some real profound things to say to his native British culture. And so being in India helped him to see some more of the problems that were present and were arising in the West at the time as faithful Christians attempted to communicate the good news or the gospel in places like Western Europe, England, and America. And he spent the, the majority of his life after coming back from India writing about, thinking about, being a theologian about these issues of the ways in which culture in the West intersects with Christian belief, how it influences or touches Christian belief. And so that's what he spent the bulk of the rest of his life doing, and he wrote a bunch of good books that you should all go pick up. Uh, But this idea of how culture intersects with faith is really really important, isn't it? Newbegin found that without thinking about these things, he was of no value in India. And by virtue of being in India, he realized that without thinking about these things, he was also of no value in his country where he grew up. That his faith had to touch, had to intersect with it, had to mingle with culture in some real and true way. And and he had to think profound thoughts, profound biblical thoughts about the ways in which that affected life. Does this make sense? And so this is what uh, Newbegin said in a, in a brief uh, essay that I read uh, earlier this week. He says the, start, the starting point, and he says the starting point for this intersection between the gospel and culture, all right? He says the starting point is the gospel itself, the narrative of those events in which the author of all being has acted to redeem and reconcile an alienated creation and to direct it towards its true end. The reason we have theologians is because they write really profound sentences like that. Okay, just for the record. And since uh, the superabundant grace and glory of God is, uh, God surpasses all our powers of thought and imagination, we may confidently expect and pray for new understandings of the scope of God's purpose for our society and new energy for doing our part in it. Does that make sense? So uh, he, he, was, he was committed to this idea of praying for 
and looking for and participating with God in uh, the purpose that he has for our society and playing a part or a role in it. And this is what our series, this uh, beginning this week, is all about. We're titling this series The Good News, which is just the word gospel. Um, and it's all about the ways in which our faith is lived out or the ways in which our faith comes into contact with public life, right? So I ju it's just called the good news, the gospel in public life. But in particular, we're going to be talking about the ways in which Christian faith, the faith that we all, that, uh, that the church, right, claims, how that comes into contact with, our, with parts of culture in everyday life. This is something that's so profound, right, and so present to us every day of our lives if we're in here and we're a follower of Jesus, but it's something that we don't often think about, which is surprising because it's almost like we're fish in water, right? We don't even realize that we are actually in water, right? We just kind of swim along, assuming that the ways in which we think about these things are right or good. But uh, hopefully through this series, through, the next, uh, through this Sunday and four weeks after it, we'll begin to think real uh, critical and uh, God-honoring thoughts about how our faith intersects with culture. So as a church, our mission is to first and foremost pursue the way of Jesus. That's one of our mission statements, to be his disciples. But we cannot be this in isolation, right? We cannot be his disciples in isolation, just off on our own little island, but the sec because the second part of our mission statement as, as a church, as Grace Community Church, is to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, right? So to pursue the way of Jesus and to proclaim that he is Lord. And if we are called to proclaim that he is Lord in any uh, cogent and intelligible way, we need to do that in contact with other people, right? We need to do that in contact with culture and with society. We have to actually rub elbows with the people that are, live and work around us. We cannot cloister ourselves off. We cannot just be uncritical about these particular issues. We have all kinds of examples of the way that faith affects public life. But what happens when we really dig down and look at some of these specific places where culture intersects with our life as Christians, how should we conduct ourselves? How should we? Because the Bible has some very clear things to say about the Christian life, but it doesn't have always very clear ways of talking about some of t modern 21st century America's issues in regards to where faith and public life mix, right, or collide. So this is the question we're asking in this series. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to cover four topics, and I have them, I think I have them as a, as a slide. So next week, we're going to cover uh, the gospel in our work as it pertains to our work. After that, uh, we're going to cover how the gospel influences how we think about politics. Tell all your friends. Uh, after that, we're going to talk about how the gospel influences the ways in which we interact with art in our culture, which is incredibly important when you think about music and movies and television and art in general, right? Painting and sculpture and all of those beautiful things. And then finally, our last week, we're going to talk about the gospel and ethics. And ethics is a huge uh, field, uh, but particularly, we're going to talk about how the gospel influences our cultural views of both money and sex. Once again, tell all your friends. It's going <laughs> to be a banner Sunday. It really will. So uh, uh, we uh, also, and I haven't made a decision about this, but um, these are big topics. There's a, lot move, there's a lot in the air here, right? 
There's a lot to think about. And there, this also might uh, spur some questions in your head and in your heart. And so I, wanna, I want you to just encourage you that if we have questions about this, that's what's supposed to be happening. This is supposed to create questions and thoughts in our brains about how our faith and how our, our proclamation of the good news or our attempt to live that good news out in public affects those around us, right? And so uh, I really want to open up space here on Sunday mornings. Uh, and to, in a couple of these, we're going to open up some time for Q&A if we have any questions. I know that's kind of a strange thing to do on a Sunday, uh, but I like the opportunity to actually have some questions about the ways in which our faith intersects with our culture, right? And it, it will stir up some, uh, some questions. And so on a couple, uh, not this week because we're laying the groundwork this week, but uh, in coming weeks, we're going to actually have some opportunity for you guys to ask questions at the end of service, just so that we can talk about it, not because I'm... Uh, the all-knowing pastor or anything, but just because it's good to have some dialogue in public about these types of issues, okay? So uh, come ready to write some stuff down or stand up and ask a question, all right? All right. Everybody's really scared about that. I w every time I, I ask for people to do stuff in public, it, it makes me laugh, I do, because I, I love it so much. I, in order to be a pastor, you have to really enjoy standing and having people listen to you talk for 30 minutes a week. Uh, and when other people don't like it, I'm like, who are these crazy people that don't like rooms of people that stand and just listen to them? Um, and I know that makes some people nervous, but uh, that's, uh, but I really do want to create space for that in the coming weeks. Okay? All right. So, uh, these, as I said, these really are incredibly important. This really is an incredibly important idea. And so today, I don't just want to dive into one of these particular cultural issues, but rather I want to lay the kind of the groundwork for the way in which we're going to approach this sermon series and the way, I which, the way in which I think the Bible um, talks to us about how we should engage our culture, right? I, I want to give us some handholds as we move into the rest of this series uh, for ways of thinking about how we actually engage culture or how uh, the gospel does uh, kind of intersect with our culture. So that's what we're going to do today. So what type, here's a good question to ask yourself, what type of citizens or neighbors does the Bible expect us to be? What type of citizens or neighbors in our own communities do, does Scripture prescribe that we should be? And so uh, I, I wanted to look specifically at Paul's interaction with uh, the Athenians in Acts 18, because I think it gives us some really helpful insights into how we are to conduct ourselves in public life, in pub and particularly in public discourse, because that's what Paul is doing here. He's having a public discourse with these philosophers in Athens. Paul's, Paul's interaction with, with the Athenians on what is called Mars Hill um, is really instructive for us about kind of the attitude or the posture we should take as we approach people in culture. I think there's some real uh, truth that can be mined here about the ways in which we go about engaging culture, the way we speak to people who believe differently than us, the ways in which uh, we really just interact, the ways in which we carry ourselves out in the public sphere. So, uh, this section of Scripture begins, or this in the middle of a section of Scripture that just gives uh, Paul in different parts of the Roman world, right? So this part is in Athens. Uh, it, 
but the previous chapter is just Paul in bang, 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 a bunch of different locations and the things that happen in those locations, the ways in which he goes about his ministry there. But this section in Athens is quite big and a little distinct from the other ones because in general in these other cities that Paul would go to, he would, just, he would first go to the synagogue he would reason with the Jewish people in the, the synagogue in that particular location. He would usually gather some followers from that. And then from the synagogue, he, his ministry would kind of radiate out, maybe to the public square in a place like Corinth or Philippi. It would, um, it would, his ministry would kind of radiate out from the synagogue. But in Athens, he did something different. He went to the synagogue, but it doesn't seem like he got a whole lot of traction there. And he goes immediately to what, is, what it was in Athens, the cultural center of his day. This was the place where all the people were making all the decisions that moved uh, all of the thought life in Athens, really in the Greco-Roman world at the time. Athens was like the, 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 the center of higher learning. It was the Harvard of its day. And these philosophers, these Athenian philosophers, would just simply sit around and talk, right? They would, they would dialogue together. They would use the Socratic method to, to dialogue and, and grow in their knowledge and understanding. And this had incredible influence on the entirety of the Greco-Roman world of the day, the ways in which they did this, and the ideas that came out of this place in Athens. And so in verse 16, Paul first sees this. He walks into Athens, and it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, so he did that, but as well, he, did, he was intentional about doing something else, as well in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So notice that Paul was aware of the culture within which he found himself, right? He was observing the culture within which he found himself. The passage says he was greatly distressed to see, which means He's seeing something, right? He's observing something. Some of us just kind of blindly blink or walk through life, believing that the way that we are living and the way that people around us are living in culture uh, is just totally synonymous with the good news, right? We, we, some of us walk through life kind of uncritically even, just assuming that everything around us is as it should be, and we just kind of go with the flow. We just participate, right, as culture kind of comes at us. Yet Paul was slightly critical here, right? He was, he was aware of the distinctions that needed to be made. But notice what his reaction was once he notices this difference. His, his, his response was not disdain, right? His, not, his response was not disdain for this different culture or this different way of being or this different way of worshiping. It was not a Facebook post. That was not his response. Sometimes I wonder if Paul would have been all over Facebook. He was, if you read the scriptures, he's a pretty fiery guy. He had problems, he had problems keeping it together. He would fire off emails like crazy. Uh, it was not, but notice, it was, his, his response was not slander or public anger, right? This was not his response. It was not even a boycott. He didn't even boycott Disney here. Um, some of you grew up in, in families where you did that, uh, which, is, which was really bad because you weren't able to watch Beauty and the Beast. Um, anyways. Uh, but uh, the, his response here was what? It was dialogue. It was a conversation. He went up to the Athenian people and he spoke with them. Surprise, surprise. And he did not speak to them. He, he did not just speak at them, did he? 
he understood them. If you look, if you jump down into verse 28, and it'll be on the screen, it says this. He says this to them when he's, when he's going through this speech or this, sermon, this mini sermonette that he kind of gives them. He says in verse 28, For in him, he's saying of God, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So what Paul does here is fascinating. And some of you probably know this, but he, right here, he's quoting Greek poets. He's not quoting the Bible here. We use this passage, particularly the first one, in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, we quote it very often. I do. I use it a lot. <laughs> and it's true because Paul quotes it, right, as being true of God. But it's actually not a, a, a quote that's original to Paul at all. There's two quotes from two different uh, Greek philosophers here. The first one um, is from a, a Cretan poet named uh, Epimendes. I think I'm getting that right. Um, and, the, and, the second, uh, and the second quote is from a Stoic poet or philosopher. Uh, the we are his offspring is, is a quote from that second philosopher. His name is uh, Artis, the, po the poet Artis. And this is not the only time that, Greek, uh, that Paul quotes Greek philosophers in the New Testament. He does it four or five other times. I didn't put those references up because it's not pertinent to what we're talking today. But this is not the last time that Paul does this. He, in, in other Greek contexts, he's quoting the scholars or the writers or the thinkers of his day. Paul is clearly a very well-read person. He's clear, clearly very aware of the, of the cultural and intellectual life that's swirling around him in his day. He is not unaware of these things. He's, he's a learned person, right? Uh, Paul, and he's not interested in simply denouncing the culture within which he finds himself. That's not what he's interested in here. He is searching for the good in it. Notice, he's not just reading these, these scholars to simply understand what the argument is so that he can then defeat the argument. He's reading these scholars and philosophers to find the good in it and participate with it. You notice that? He's participating with the good he sees in their culture by quoting these scholars in a positive way, in a positive direction. Fascinating. And he, uh, and he does also articulate difference, right? He does point out the places in which there is difference between what he thinks and believes and what the Athenians in their predominant culture think and believe. But notice he does not do this in a way that breeds contempt or anger. And how do we know this? Uh, in verse 32, it says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others of them said, we want to hear more about this subject, right? Come back and talk with us. He clearly treated them in a way that did not make them feel bad or less than. He did not uh, put distance between himself simply to put distance between he and these philosophers. Rather, he said something intriguing, right? He, he parroted back to them something they understood and knew. He communicated to them in a vernacular, in a language that they would understand, and they were intrigued by this interaction, and they wanted to hear more, right? They were intrigued by their interaction with Paul, and they wanted to hear more. He was not simply walking in and speaking the truth. And what that often means is I just get people real mad and then I leave, right? He was not simply speaking the truth. He was dialoguing over a difference of ideas, right? He was having a real 
fully-orbed, full-blooded conversation about difference and distinction. And he did it in a way that both honored, honored the tradition from which the Athenian people were coming, but also respected them enough to articulate where the difference may lie. Does this make sense? This is a conversation Paul is having here. And what it did, what it did was provoke interest, right? It provoked a desire for more conversation. At the end of this passage, if you read down, if you read down in it, you'll notice that some of them came to faith, right? Some, some people who heard him came to faith in Jesus. Many of them didn't, but they were not, but they had not shut themselves off to him, Right? They had not shut themselves off to the conversation. And Paul goes back and he has further conversation, I'm sure of it, right? And it's important to realize that this, it can, this is a paradigm for, I think, the way the church should interact with culture. It's a way that we can interact with those around us. It's a way for Christians to interact with culture. I think it's a very, very helpful paradigm. But I want, uh, real quickly, uh, I want to point out just two ways that Paul's method here differs from two ways that the church can sometimes move into error in the way that it approaches culture, okay? There's, there's common ways that the church uh, deals with culture, and some of them aren't always good, right? Can we agree that some of the ways in which we engage culture aren't always good? And I just want to point two of those out for us just so that we can be explicit and we can see something against which we can uh, hold up Paul's model for us. Does this make sense? All right. So the, uh, the first uh, way in which the church has at times approached culture that I think is unhelpful uh, and that contradicts Paul's model is the first, the first uh, way I like to look at it. I call this one abandonment. Do we have that on the screen? Abandonment. Uh, this is uh, the one for the Pentecostal evangelicals in the room that come from my tradition. Uh, we have, if we have erred in our engagement with culture, we have erred on the side of cultural abandonment, okay? So this is my people. <laughs> I say this from the inside, not from the outside. So rather than figuring out how to engage culture well, people who have adopted this kind of abandonment posture have just drawn a bunch of lines or dots, in the, a bunch of lines in the sand of do's and don'ts so that we don't have to think critically about how the gospel interacts with our world. Do you see what I mean? So we just grow, we, we draw a bunch of lines in the sand. They say, this, we do this, we don't do this, we do this, we don't do this, we do this, we don't do this. And those are the rules. And as long as you abide by the rules, you're good. So all the people who follow the rules feel great about themselves, but they're actually not thinking critically about their culture in any particular way right? They're just, they're just following the do's and don'ts by, by abandoning the things that they believe to be bad, right? Uh, and uh, they aren't not, they're not actually thinking critically because they, they create do's and don'ts for themselves so that they don't have to think. Does this make sense? If we have just a list of rules, and this is part of the reason why religion isn't always good, if we just have a list of rules and we follow them, we don't have to actually think about our lives. We just follow rules. Does this make sense? And that's not the way we're called to engage with culture. So in the past, uh, this applied to uh, my tradition in this way. So uh, when my parents were growing up in, this, in our tradition, there was no movies, right? No, like not no rated R movies, just no movies, right? Some of you might, have, might be familiar with this. If not, don't worry about it. If you think they're crazy people, that's fine too. Uh, 
another one, and this will sound crazy, there was no shorts. My mom uh, was, a Je- was a Jesus people person in the 70s, and she, oh, one of her best friends uh, was one of the best players on the basketball team, and he came from a r- conservative family, and he wore shorts when he played basketball, obviously, and so his dad wouldn't go watch him play basketball, right? This is a real thing. <laughs> it's not a fake thing. Um, or in my time, there was no shorts above the knee, right? Do you, we would go to church camp, and we wouldn't be allowed to wear shorts that went above our knees, which wasn't a problem for guys, because at time, that time, the guys wore, like, what looked like capri pant versions of jean shorts that were, that were well below the knee, but also well below the behind. Um, that was the look, people. I said behind from the stage, just for the record. Uh, there are other options to say, but I did not take them. Uh, this just makes me think that I'm glad I wasn't, uh, I wasn't around back then because I don't know what these people would have said about my bike clothes. They wouldn't have been very positive about what I wear to ride my bike. Uh, so, okay, we'll move on past the clothing part. Uh, don't think about that, but for the record. Uh, we, so we separate ourselves from culture in ways that are not helpful, right, under this model. Uh, we just, uh, like I said, we draw a bunch of lines in the sand, and, and we don't move. And this has manif- this same uh, this same kind of philosophy of abandonment has has marked itself in other ways in our culture. Uh, and the other way that this has manifested is that Christian cult- Christians have just created their own subculture, right? Of like their own movies and their own books and their own vid- their own video games. Does anybody ever remember playing like a Moses in the desert video game when they were a little kid? It was like the safe video game to play because it didn't have any guns or anything in it. Um, uh, but we create so we create this subculture, and so we then Christians can just blindly participate in the Christian culture because it was it was made by Christians, right? It's another way that we just kind of abandon culture altogether. And so your mom or dad, instead of uh, asking you critical questions about why you're engaging with certain things in culture, just go, just buy the Christian stuff, and then I don't have to worry about what my kids are watching, right? We do this sometimes. Rather than being critical about the ways in which our our life and our family are engaging culture, we just say, I don't want to think about it. Just buy some Christian stuff. As long as it's at the family Christian store, we're all good, right? This happens. We're all guilty of this, right? We're all guilty of this kind of abandonment of culture. And there's no, more Christian, there's no more family Christian stores. They went bankrupt, so now you just have to buy it online, and that's difficult because you don't know what Amazon's doing, right? <laughs> so this is kind of going away, I guess. Um, and I'm not saying all of those things are inherently bad. I'm just saying it's the way in which we can kind of be like, um, what's, the, what's the bird that sticks its head in the ground? Ostriches. There we go. Thank you for your help. We can all be like an ostrich, and we can just kind of stick our head in the ground and, and ignore what's happening around us and not engage critically with culture. But obviously, the problem with this way of thinking is that it separates us, right? It creates barriers for, between us and people even, doesn't it? It creates barriers of the ways in which we engage with people outside of the church. It's not a good thing. So this is the first mistake that we often make. So the second mistake, and this one I'm going to move past quickly because we're we're running, we're running long here. The second uh, mistake we often make is just what I call immersion, just immersion. So this is what I would call also non-critical participation, right? We just non-critically engage with everything in culture as though it is a good thing inherently, right? We just don't think critically about the ways in which we are called as, 
as the church to engage with much of anything. There, in this way of thinking, there's often simply no difference between the gospel and our culture. We just kind of participate and go along. Uh, we use everything. We participate in everything. We uncritically believe that we are just in the culture that we are in, and there's nothing we can do about it, right? So we just go with the flow. This, this is often a mistake that people make in cultures that have, that are like supposedly predominantly Christian, Right? believing that macro culture, if, if you just get over the 50% bump of people who claim to be Christian, that the culture is automatically good. That happens to not be true at all. Um, there are cultures in this world who have, act, the, in, the, in, Rome, in the Roman world after Constantine, Constantine just said, okay, everyone's Christian, because he's, he's the emperor and he could say that. And he just said, okay, now everybody's Christian. And what that do is meant that nobody wasn't a Christian. And so people just began blindly accepting everything in culture because they believed their culture was a Christian culture because the emperor said so, right? Did it make sense? So they just started blindingly, blindingly, believe, blindly, there we go, believing everything that culture kind of sent their way. And they, and they found themselves in a pretty sticky predicament, right? So we can't simply immerse ourselves in culture and think that that is the way that the church should function. And so how should the church function then? How ought we ought to do it? What can, what can we glean from Paul about the ways in which we are called to engage culture? How does the church do this? Well, I wanted to just put some words on it, uh, to, but I, and just to clear it up for us. And so the, I got this from a quote from another book, but um, I like the term redemptive participation. So if you have your notes, you can write that down because I think it's really good. I think it's a helpful um, phrase for us to think through how the church is meant to engage culture, redemptive participation. And so, what do I mean by redemptive participation? Um, this is a quote from John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York City, and in New York City you have to think a lot about these things. Um, uh, and he says this, uh, part of redemptive participation is seeking neither to control or abandon the world, but to love it to new life through redemptive participation. We are called to participate in culture, but we are called to participate redemptively, right? We are called to participate for the good of the culture, right? We are not to participate in culture for necessarily our own good, right? We don't just advocate for ourselves. We advocate for the good of everyone, we advocate for human flourishing, period, because the church is called to be a, the force or the, the avenue through which the kingdom of God finds its roots in society. Does this make sense? And so we have to go out as ambassadors of that kingdom and work redemptively for the good of that culture, society, place, right? This means that we proclaim the good news of that Jesus is Lord, out into the world that has ramifications for the way we think and act, right? Because if you say Jesus is Lord, there's a whole list of other things in your life that are not, that cannot occupy that space. And the reason this is good news is because we believe that humans function best, right, in society, that society is at its best when this is true, when the majority of society believes that Jesus is Lord. And so we proclaim that truth because it... Um, we believe, as the church, aids in human flourishing. It aids the common good. Paul engages the Greeks 
He engages this Greek culture uh, by knowing it, by reading its philosophers, and yet he also provokes them to questions. He participates in their dialogue, in their, even in their mode of thinking and of reasoning, but he does so redemptively with, with an end, with a goal in mind. He does so in a redemptive manner. Now, notice what Tyson says in that quote. He says, seeking neither to control, so we're not attempting to control people, to use, to use force in order to make people do what we want them to do, or to make the culture the way we want it to make it. No, we don't control people because Jesus never controlled anyone, right? Jesus died for people. He sacrificed his own life for people as an example. He did not attempt to control anyone. And we'll talk about this a little bit more on the politics day. That'll be fun. Call everybody you know. Uh, but he also did, not, Paul did, also did not abandon, did he? He did not walk away and just say, oh, these people, they don't think like me. I just got to get away. I just got to preserve the thing that I have, right, over here in the corner and kind of hide and cloister myself away. No. No. The church is called to be a faithful presence, a faithful witness out in culture and in society to, uh, and to re- redemptively participate in the culture in which we find ourselves, to participate redemptively wherever it is that we find ourselves. And so how do we do that? Well, you got to come back next week and the next couple weeks to really figure that out because today I was just laying the groundwork. Sorry. But how, how beautiful of a thing is it if we were known as a church that doesn't shut ourselves off, right, that doesn't antagonize, that doesn't uh, stand in a way that is adversarial for, towards culture, towards our community, towards our neighbors, but rather people say of us, they love, they won't have the word redemptive because they don't understand, but uh, they lovingly participate in our community, attempting to make it a better place than it was when they last showed up, right? What a beautiful narrative to be said of any church, of any group of Jesus followers, that they redemptively participate in their community, that they, that they partner with, love, dialogue about difference, yes, but do so respectively in such a way that makes the place they live a better place. Wow. That would be quite a thing to be said about any church, right? That we redemptively participate in our culture, in our society, in our towns and neighborhoods and cities. If we do that, if we do that, if we take cues from the ways in which Paul dealt with his, his culture and his society, I think we can learn a thing or two. And over the next couple of weeks, I want to look specifically about some of the ways that this uh, theme of redemptive participation plays itself out in four of the bigger areas of our lives, four of the bigger contact points between where we intersect with culture and how we bring the good news of of Jesus into those environments. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And uh, this was an informational message today, God. And I ask uh, that you would help us to really look at it for what it is, that you would help us to see that you're calling us to participate redemptively in our community, to partner with you, to see your kingdom come and your will be done 
in Cedar Falls and in the Cedar Valley as it is in heaven. God, would you help us to engage with people, to engage with our neighbors this week, to love them, uh, to live with them, to respect them, uh, and to talk to them well about all manner of things. Jesus, we want to be your people in the world. Help us uh, to be your ambassadors. We love you, Jesus, and we ask that you would help us to love you more. We pray it all in your name. Amen and amen. Thank you, everybody, for being here. If, you, uh, if you're new with us and you have a, and you filled out